Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Let us listen now for God's Word. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look. There is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, one of the things that we like to do in our free time, whenever we can find it, is uh, Mary and I like to watch a lot of movies, whenever we can. Now, unfortunately, we have very different tastes in movies, in a lot of things in general. And I, I don't just mean that like she likes chick flicks and I like action movies or anything like that. Our major disagreement, or our major sticking point, runs much deeper than that. It's about something much more fundamental than genre. It has to do with endings. Mary pretty much craves happy endings, right? She lives for the nice, neat little bow that is often tied to the ends of movies. You know what I'm talking about, right? Endings that wrap everything up so nicely and beautifully that leave no ambiguity, no questions that, you know, the happily ever after kind of ending. Everyone, every problem is solved and everyone is good. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I only like movies with sad endings. I mean, you know, I, I like a happy ending from time to time, too. But I will say that I prefer movies that are a bit more honest, a bit more authentic, right? Movies that I think more accurately reflect real life. Because real life doesn't always have a happy ending. Real life doesn't always come with that prepackaged bow that wraps everything up real nicely. Real life is often difficult, messy. It often asks more questions than it ever answers. Now again, that doesn't mean I I have to have a sad or a painful ending. I can appreciate a good happy ending if it's done well. But but I do seek out that that kind of honesty or authenticity. I think think our difference in movie preference probably means something like that Mary and, and people like her see movies and television, these stories that are crafted for our entertainment, in some way as a way of kind of escaping reality, right? Escaping the world that we live in. It's a welcomed break from the real world and all of its messiness and ambiguity and complexity. And I can totally understand that. Whereas I and the few other weirdos out there like me, I watch television and movies in search for stories that describe the world that I know and the world that I experience. 
And, you know, again, one's not necessarily better than the other, though I think my movies are better, but, <laughs> but they're just different, right? They're different kind of perspectives. It's, it's who we are, and that's fine. It just makes, you know, making a decision at the red box a, a little bit more tough. But if you're wondering where you fit into this happy endings debate, just go back and read Mark 16, 1 through 8 again. Mark's version of the Easter story. And, and see how it strikes you. Read it closely this time. I, I think it's safe to say that Mark's version of that first Easter morning is probably the least popular of all four of the Gospels. The tone of Mark's account is so different from that of the other Gospel writers that at, at certain points it almost feels like a completely different story. Now it starts out with, in familiar territory, right? The women, they go to the site of the tomb after the Sabbath is over. They go with their burial spices to anoint the body only to discover that the stone has been rolled away. They walk inside expecting to see the lifeless body of their beloved rabbi, but are greeted instead by a young man dressed in a white robe, presumably an angel. And that angel relays the good news that, that Jesus is not there. He has been raised from the dead and is going ahead of them to Galilee, just as he told them that he would. And they're instructed to go tell the other disciples to meet him there. Now, so far, so good, right? This sounds about right. Everything seems to be in order. And then comes verse 8, this interesting line at the end. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Terror, amazement, and fear. These are the three emotions that these women, the first witnesses to the resurrection, experience. Terror and fear are not exactly the first two words that pop into my mind when I think about Easter morning, right? This is, this is not exactly the Easter story that I know. You know, where are the bright colors and the bright lights? And, you know, where's the, the overwhelming joy and exuberance at the good news of Christ's resurrection? Where's the heavenly host singing, Jesus Christ is risen today. Ah, uh, right, we just sang it. You know what I'm talking about. You know, the, the, the Easter hymns that we sing so often don't seem to capture the emotion of this moment for these women. Right, what happened to that Easter day with joy was bright, the sun shone out with fairer light, when to their longing eyes restored, the apostles saw their risen Lord. I don't know about you, but that, that doesn't sound like the Easter story I just read about. And if Mark's version of the first Easter makes you a bit uncomfortable, or if you secretly prefer John's or Matthew's or Luke's that are a lot more joyous and bright and kind of boisterous, you're not alone. As far as we can tell, the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel, at least the ones that we have access to, in those very early manuscripts, uh, it ends at verse 8. It ends with the women being afraid and not telling anyone with the women, these very first witnesses to the resurrection, running away in terror and silence, sprinting from this universe-altering miracle of Christ's resurrection. So evidently, later scribes and copyists were rather uncomfortable with how Mark ended his gospel. And so added in a couple of different endings at some point, both of which are preserved in most English translations. So if you, if you open your Bible now to Mark 16, you will see that there's probably about 
12 extra verses added on to the end of that. Some folks apparently felt the need to provide a bit of a happier ending, and perhaps also to make sense of the fact that the women clearly did tell someone, right? Word got out. They figured out that Jesus was, in fact, risen. But all this, I think, raises the question for us. Why, why would Mark end his gospel like this? Why would he end it at that moment? Why end on terror and fear and not joy and elation? We've spent the last six weeks in Lent working through what I think is one of the most difficult books of the Bible, the book of Lamentations. We've waded through the deep waters of its poetry, poetry of despair and hopelessness and darkness. I don't know about you, but after six weeks of that, week after week after week, I've really been looking forward to Resurrection Day. After all that darkness, I've been dying for some light. And I imagine that after the week that these women just had, watching their beloved teacher and friend go through what he went through and die the death that he died, I imagine they were dying for some light too. But Mark doesn't flood us with light all at once. Mark doesn't turn the brights on right away. Instead, he slowly turns the shades to let just enough light in so that our hearts can slowly adjust to this new reality. This is not the flood of light that we might have expected, but it is unquestionably good news. Easter is often presented as this, this moment of unveiling where Jesus' disciples finally, for the first time, they finally see, after these years of misunderstanding and confusion, struggling to be faithful to Jesus and his call on their lives, their eyes are finally opened. And they finally, finally, they get it. That when they discover the tomb empty, they can hear the heavenly chorus, at least in their hearts. And they realize that everything is going to be just fine. This is their happily ever after moment. But that's not the narrative that Mark is interested in telling. Now perhaps Mark realizes that life is a bit more complicated than that, a bit messier. Or perhaps Mark doesn't know about all of the stories of Jesus' appearances to the disciples after the resurrection, though that seems unlikely. But maybe instead, Mark just knew how, from my perspective, how to write a good ending. Because the resurrection is not this nice, tidy bow that wraps everything up. It doesn't wrap up the Jesus story you know, where everyone walks away and lives happily ever after, and that's that. The resurrection does not answer every question all at once. It does not close every book or fix every problem. It is not a one-size-fits-all solution to all the problems of our world, at least not yet, not on this side of eternity. Mark's ending is open, and it invites the reader, us, into the story, not, not only by forcing us to ask questions about what the heck happened after the women ran away in fear, but also because we too become a part of that story. We become active participants in the writing of the story of what happened after Jesus was raised. Mark's end is no end at all. It's a beginning. And the story of Jesus' resurrection is one that the church, 
has been writing and participating in ever since. Now, don't get me wrong. The, the resurrection, of course, changes everything. The world that we live in is fundamentally different because the tomb was empty on that morning. But that doesn't mean that we don't still experience pain and fear, confusion, isolation, and despair. That doesn't mean that there aren't still times that we wonder where God is, or like Daughter Zion from the Book of Lamentations, wonder if God has abandoned us. But even as the women at the tomb are overwhelmed by terror and amazement, and even as they flee that place in fear and in silence, they take with them a promise. And it's that promise that sustains them. It's that promise that ultimately leads them to let the secret out, to spread the word of what they saw. And the promise is not only that the Lord has been raised, but that he is going ahead of them to meet them. All questions have not been answered. All problems have not been solved. But God is with them. And God is calling them forward. They have not been abandoned. Death does not have the last word. And so we, nearly 2,000 years later, still cling to that same promise. (coughs) That God is with us. That God is ahead of us. And that God is calling us to God's own self. So as we depart and go our separate ways and probably eat a nice big Easter feast, we go in the assurance of that promise. It is that promise that keeps us moving forward, that keeps us putting one foot in front of the other. It's that promise that sustains us. It's that promise that gives us hope in the face of the bleakest of circumstances, knowing that our lives are in the hands of the one who has power over death. When God breaks into our world and begins to move in our midst, It can be terrifying because our eyes have not quite adjusted. But we lean on that promise that God is with us, that God is ahead of us, and God is calling us. So do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Amen.